Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is Michelle W. Malkin, your host, and our guest today is Gali Cooks, who is Executive Director of Leading Edge, Alliance for Excellence in Jewish Leadership which was formed in 2014 by foundations and federations to influence, inspire, and enable dramatic change in attracting, developing, and retaining top talent for Jewish organizations. Gali has previously worked with the Embassy of Israel, APAC, the Harold Ginspoon Foundation, Rita and Stanley Kaplan Family Foundation, and URJ's Youth Division, Her bio is, of course, on our website for a more complete picture of all of her wonderful endeavors. One of the things that made me interested in bringing Gali into the program was this creation of the Leading Edge organization, which came out of the Leadership Pipeline Initiative report, which I'm not sure how long it took to put together, but as far as my understanding, it was very extensive, really looking at the Jewish community and its professionals and where things could be improved. From that report came two different themes. One was the field of Jewish nonprofits is not sufficiently developing and advancing the leaders it already has. The other theme was many Jewish organizations don't have the value proposition to attract and retain the leaders they need. So before we jump into the work, I just want to welcome Gali and hear a little bit about her own personal journey, how she came into this position with Leading Edge. So welcome, Gali. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. This is, uh, this is a first for me and a treat. <laughs> wonderful. Well, we're very happy to have you and I'd love for you to just let us know, how did you uh, come to this wonderful position? So my path has really been one that's uh, circuitous and kind of sprinkled with serendipity, honestly. Um, I don't think anyone grows up saying, I want to lead a Jewish organization that's mm-hmm. all about the uh, talent recruitment and retention issues in the Jewish community. So I, I'm Israeli by birth. And um, I was born in Israel. My parents are Israeli, very, very old roots in Israel, Palestine, if you will, even before then. And um, when I was six, we moved to the States. And I would say that dual kind of identity of having one foot in American society and since first grade being very much part of this country and having all of my family and every summer spent in Israel and feeling very Israeli with Americans for a very long time, especially in Minnesota, which is where we moved. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, which I joke with my parents that, you know, did you throw a dart? Is that how we got right. here? Right. So I, I think that kind of dual identity really led me to be drawn to Jews, honestly, and like all my friends. And I think like many secular Israelis who do Yerida and go to a place where there are non-Jews, my parents sent us to Orthodox Jewish Day School. In Minneapolis, got really enmeshed in a totally different type of Judaism, and you know, for me, it was uh, growing up secular Israeli in mm-hmm. in Israel. Shabbat was for the beach; it wasn't right. for anything else. So, I think that was kind of the core. And then um, there was sort of a pivotal moment when I was eighteen. I was either going to go to the, the army. I have three siblings, and out of the four of us, I would say I have the strongest connection still with Israel and mm-hmm. a family, and and always wanted to go back and. So I was either going to go to the army or I was going to go to school, to university. And I remember my father saying, you know, golly, with all due respect, you're a woman. So what are you going to be already? A secretary? Which in those days, when he was also a soldier in like the late 60s, that was the case. It was like, well, why would you waste two years of your life when you could? He's like, go to university and then serve the state of Israel with your mind. 
that was kind of his thing. And that's exactly what I did. Went to University of Wisconsin-Madison and then worked at the Embassy of Israel, like you noted, as a speechwriter, which I was horrible at. In no. fact, horrible <laughs> tried, speech. I'm sure. <laughs> I really tried. I uh, could never come up with good jokes or anything like that. So as a speechwriter, and, and that was the first time that I saw the power that comes with access to key influencers and how money really figures into that. So we would be at the Embassy of Israel, there would be VIP events, and there was always like, you know, a segment of the the list of whether it was like a Yom Ma'ud event or like a Yitzhak Rabin Memorial or something like that. There'd be 5,000 people invited and then it was members of the diplomatic corps and members of Congress and whatever. And then it was like 15% of like other, like mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. St. John. I'm like, right. who are these people? They're from <laughs> They're yeah. philanthropists and they're chatting up Dick Cheney by the ice cream, you know, sculpture. So that was interesting. And I, that was kind of my entree in some, some ways to philanthropy and kind of understanding that there is a segment of people, a very large one and a growing one of people who've made tremendous private wealth and they want to use it for the public good. And some of them do it really, really strategically and amazingly. And some of them, I don't know how, and they employ people who help advise them and what have you. And that kind of the circuitous route was uh, led me to the Harold Grinspoon Foundation through worked at APAC there for a while. And then really with Harold, it was the idea. So I was the founding director of PJ Library. And it was the idea that here is somebody who has tremendous wealth and wants to give back in a way that was really beautiful gift that would come to a family. So that was my first startup. And then I kind of got the startup bug a little bit, the philanthropy and startup bug. So from there, I went to still was in philanthropy at the Kaplan Foundation, like you mentioned, during that time, got an MBA where I was really enamored with how philanthropy is kind of the intersection of the three sectors. And in order to best translate the ability of private philanthropists or or private people of wealth who usually make their fortunes in business, I knew that I had to get more of their thinking under my belt. So that's what led me to the MBA. I did a stint at a tech startup. That was my one foray outside of the Jewish community and outside of the nonprofit sector. I knew from the first day that was not for me. And then I read this report that you mentioned and was like, yes, 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 yes. Like this is, this is, uh, this is it. Like we're a service industry in the Jewish community. I'd worked for too many, in too many organizations and supported too many organizations. I was on the board of too many organizations that just because of structure, we weren't able to let people maximize their potential. And that just drove me crazy. It, it just it should not be. And because I'd worked in philanthropy, I saw the the list of 38 people or whoever uh, that were part of that initial report, gave a call to one of them and said, okay, yes, let's uh, let's do this. And and that kind of led to, well, we're looking for an executive director. And I was like, executive director for what? What are you talking about? <laughs> that kind of led to... Cool. Uh, and here you are. And how long? So 2014. So it's been about three years. Yeah, it's like two and a half years. Two and a half years. So it's okay. been... Yeah. So the, the report came out in about March 2014. Then this group of funders that you mentioned said, okay, you know what? Let's band together, throw in some money. We know there's a need. Can we demonstrate demand from our organizations that they actually do want to invest more and better in their talent? And then in November, 2014 is when I started. So it's, yeah, like two and a half years. Awesome. So I don't mean to be so presumptuous, but I will be anyway. Please. You went from, you know, legislative assistant at APAC and into this position uh, with PJ Library. What do you think were the qualities or, or what made you qualified to be the founding director of this project within a foundation? Oh my God, youth and like, okay. <laughs> like stupidness. Like, yeah, it was, no, no. I mean, look, Harold Grinspoon is an entrepreneur. And Harold is one of the best judges of character I have ever encountered. 
his gut is like a true north. And ah, we went for a walk. I mean, Harold is kind of like legendary for going for walks. We went for a walk outside in Boston. It was raining. I was like, what is happening right now? And he told me about this idea that he's like, I want to give away free Jewish children's books once a month to families with young kids. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And that was it. And he's like, do you want to start it for us? And I was like, sure. (laughs) No. Did you feel ready to do that? No, no. no. (laughs) But you know, I was like, okay, it's a puzzle. It's basically like, all right, we have to make sure that the quality of the product is great. Mm -hmm. Like these books have to compete with the other books on the shelf. From a puzzle perspective, it was like, okay, we've got five age groups. We need 12 books or something. We, we mm-hmm. ended up giving some parenting books and some music as well. So first, let's get the product. Then we were like, okay, well, who am I to choose these things? Early childhood experts, right. you know, then, okay. It just kind of fell into place that way. And also Harold was really, really involved from day one. I mean, yeah. day you know, zero. He had a vision. Oh, yeah. He used you to, to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I was like the sweat equity. I was like, please, let's just, you know, I would win very few arguments with the man. Right. But when I did, it was really, it was all about the product. It was like, right. please let us just get these books right. Because if the kid is going to be excited about getting this every month, then we've won. Then like the parent is in, then we can right. do other stuff. Like. Yeah, but no, I was not qualified. I mean, I was like, okay. I think he was basically looking for someone who was so naive. <laughs> to say, really, because right. once you've done one startup, then you're like, oh my God, the pain of having right. to start something new and you're, you know, the failure, the resilience, the, you know. But no, I mean, I took a walk with Harold and he asked me weird questions and then he's like, you want to start this? And I was like, sure, let's do it. Right. Somebody had mentioned starting a podcast for some project and how easy it was. And it was really cheap. And I sent him a little message. I was like, um, no <laughs> so way. Like, hey, you know, like I've done it and it's kind of hard and actually expensive. And if you want help, let me know. But it's not easy, right? When you're talking about startup and starting something new, there's not much that's ever easy about that. No, no, not if you want to do it right. Exactly. So I want to jump a little bit more into the work. And I know that you came on after this report was already published, but from your understanding and knowledge of how this report came to be, a little bit of how it got created. I know that there were various focus groups and interviews and and all that good stuff. So from your understanding, how did this all get started? There are different places where different leaders of Jewish organizations on the philanthropic side and major Jewish organization side meet. And one of these contexts brings together leaders of Jewish foundations or foundations that fund a lot of Jewish life, I should say, in Mm -hmm. in the United States and beyond, and federations. And it was over the course of these types of meetings that a segment of the people who attended this meeting, merely my founders, were like, wow, a theme here is that everyone's concerned about leadership. Everyone's concerned about not having a bench. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know, let's say in five years and 10 years, I'm going to retire. I'm not sure who's going to take over. It kept coming up again and again and again. And this group, this core group, which really is my founding parents, if you will, of, of this venture, were like, okay, we have the capability to change that if we wanted to. And so basically started thinking about, you know, what might it look like for us to build a leadership pipeline? Because Remember, from a foundation's perspective, if you're investing money in an organization, just like a company, mm-hmm. I mean, foundations are almost like VCs, especially depending on like their risk tolerance. It really mm-hmm. is all about the talent to carry out that, whatever the, the deal is. And so if you don't have like real skilled individuals who are at the helm of an organization, that organization is not going to be great. It's just right. not. And if it is great and they're not skilled people, that organization's not going to continue being great for a very long time. So from a funder's perspective, it was like, okay, well, our investments are really exposed in a way. 
You know, Mm -hmm. like we know that there are demographic shifts happening. We know that. We know that we're being told by headhunters and we've been on search committees where it's really hard to find qualified candidates for some of these positions. And these positions are really important. And it's hard when when it seems like they're in the position where they've got the money and the heart, right? And they know that, you know, they want to invest in the Jewish community, but not confident necessarily in the talent in which they are getting to utilize their money to do what they want it to do and kind of are in a vulnerable, helpless place at that point because what do you do with that situation? Exactly. Exactly. So that's when these 15 or so individuals were like, all right, well, we have to understand why. Like, why aren't we able to attract the kind of leaders that we need, the best of the best leaders for Mm -hmm. our Jewish organizations? And again, think about it. Like, these are organizations that have a tremendous amount of assets, not only like literally you know, like resources, but also, you know, from a programmatic impact perspective and all of that, we're talking about the joint, we're talking about the ADL, we're talking about Jewish federations of fill in the blank city, we're talking about a lot of JCCs, which huge amount of assets, both in human capital, as well as capital capital, and buildings and, you know, the real estate, all that. And so that's where they went to Bridgespan, a nonprofit consulting arm of, uh, it used to be Bain Management Consultants, and they said, can you help us here? Because we need to answer this question. And that's where the study came out. There were some focus groups, like you mentioned, of about Mm -hmm. 180 or so focus groups and interviews with 180 individuals asking, you know, why are we having such a hard time attracting the talent that we need and the leaders Mm -hmm. that we need? And those were the two themes. That report pointed to two themes. They were like, look, we've talked to 180 people. We also know what it's like outside of the Jewish community and just what demographics in the United States look like right now and how the Jewish community compares to other industries when it comes to acquiring and retaining the best talent. And, you know, number one, there's a pipeline full of talent that you're not developing. And that is a missed opportunity, they would say in the next breath. And the second is our value proposition. Like you mentioned, we kind of have an image problem. I mean, going back to kind of that PJ Library understanding of like, if a book has to compete on the shelf, if a Jewish book has to compete on the shelf with like a Disney, you know, children's book that's got all the bells and whistles, Mm -hmm. like the kid's going to go to the thing that's like more alluring in whatever the value proposition is to that Mm -hmm. kid. In the same way to any high potential talent who wants to actually like do good work, they could choose to go to work at a Jewish day school or they could go to Teach for America. Right. What Bridgespan found was, you know, that attraction element is kind of lackluster because of our our risk aversion, our bureaucratic structures, a lot of the politics that this talent saw, you know, all all those things that were just, you know, let me not even go there and I'll go to a different way to make the world a better place. Right. It was part of my graduate program with HUC and the nonprofit management. You can have the option to choose a degree from USC to complement your education. And the options have widened over the years from mostly MSW to include MPA, MBA, communications, and of course, also MSW. I chose to go the MPA route, but I found that a lot of my colleagues that chose the MBA route went into this business school at USC with a small cohort of individuals who were there for much different reasons. And over the course of two years, saw other people, right, who were going to graduate and make $140,000 a year at some startup. And they were looking at the prospects of, you know, graduating and making 50 if they're lucky. You know, when you talk about the value proposition, for them, it was, okay, well, I have the same education as this person. If I go into the for-profit world and make $140,000 at 27, oh, well, then I can sit on boards and I can be philanthropic and I can do that. And not to say there's anything wrong with that. That's fantastic. But more than the money, right? Because like it's not somebody's only factor. 
when they're in that experience of getting an MBA at USC, they don't look back to the Jewish community and say, there's a place for me. They, and they, or they do when they say it's on a board and not as a professional Yep, and what that means. And not all of them, obviously, but, and then for me where, you know, the skills of an MPA of really looking at governmental structures or nonprofit structures, budgeting, fight, I mean, everything aligned perfectly up with what I wanted to do it, you know, in the Jewish world. And so I saw myself having a place there based on that. Yeah. Um, that's the microcosm. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. Yep. So I want to look at, so from from that report that was published, and I think had a lot of buzz and people yeah. were reading it and interested in it, this organization was created Leading Edge. And from my understanding, there are three main components of this, the CEO mm-hmm. onboarding, the Laid Leadership Commission, and the Leading Places to Work. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually like to start with the CEO onboarding and maybe talk a little bit about why, and I know this is a part of the report, the Pipelines report, but what is it about that process that you're hoping to influence these particular issues that were found in the report? Yeah. CEO onboarding. So this is a 12-month leadership development program for CEOs who are new in their role. And for the first cohort, we said they have to be in their role 18 months or less. For our next cohort, which we're about to announce, it's going to be a little bit longer. The idea there is as follows. If we know that there are an overwhelming number of leaders who are going to be retiring or stepping down from our Jewish organizations in the next five to seven years. And the report cites, and this is on trend with everything else that's happening in American society, in the next five to seven years, 75% to 90% of our leaders are stepping down. There are, by our estimates, and this is a crass one, there are 9,500 Jewish organizations in the United States. That includes congregations, about a third. So if we're saying out of the 9,500 organization, 75% at the minimum of these leaders are going to be stepping down or transitioning out or retiring the vast majority. Mm -hmm. That's more than 7,000 leaders that need to become in. Right. Now, we also know that the first 100 days and the first year of any tenure are incredibly formative. Like that's when the seeds are sown for transformation, for goodwill, for all of the things that can really make or break an executive. Mm -hmm. We also know that there's an overwhelming majority of people who leave their job within the first three months, within the first six months. Like that churn can be incredibly costly to an organization, especially- In an executive level position. Yes. Yes. And that- Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you've got a leader coming in after a long serving leader or founder. Is that a function of the individual not understanding the responsibility of the position or is it a function of the organization not being welcoming or accepting of change or a new person or is it a mixture of both? It's all of those. It's really multifaceted. It could go down to the search committee. Did they find the right candidate Mm -hmm. for the role and did they sell the position in a way that is indicative of the reality. Sometimes there's a very big delta between the reality and the ideal that they sell. Right. Yeah. And my conversation before us was with Derek Klarfeld at DRG talking about their process as far as not just putting out the description and finding somebody, but doing some internal review and saying, okay, well, what do we really need this person to do? What are are our goals? What are we looking forward to before 
bringing people in to really understand how will this person be successful to try and find the right fit that, as you mentioned, isn't out the door in, in three months that they're coming into a situation that not only might be more embracing to them, but have thought more deeply about this transition than simply we need to fill a seat to get somebody in here. Yep. Also, like, what's the profile? And is the job description doable by a human being? Right. Like, that's the other thing. Gerald Messenger, actually, the board chair of URJ, had a great comment as we were working with our leadership group, which we'll get to, obviously. She said, you know, I, I really feel like having now been on many, many different search committees that we're like, we're looking for unicorns. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking for these mythical creatures that don't exist. There's no way that one person can be a great manager, a great development person, a great visionary, a multifaceted expert on X, Y, and Z. Let's really be very clear about expectations. Yeah, so you're right. That fit um, is really, really key. Also, what ends up happening is because we don't have a robust pipeline of qualified candidates who are ready, willing, and able to take the role, search committees end up taking a very long time to find the mm-hmm. candidates. And so by the time that they find somebody, they're like, oh my God, thank God you're here. Okay, here are the keys. We're tired. Right. Good luck. You know, that's- Or not- like, here's a whole dump of everything that's been going on for the last exactly. year that hasn't, nobody has been here to deal you with. It. You got it. Good luck, right? That's right. Exactly. With no roadmap, no like, listen, in the first 30 days, if you don't meet these 10 people, it's not going to be good. You know, like something right. that's like more than- just look, look, here's the job description. And look, if you're hiring somebody's skill, they're not going to need a lot of handholding, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of our positions are, you know, a, let's say a Jewish federation head. That's like being the Jewish mayor. Right. That is multifaceted. There's a lot of stakeholders and like you need someone to say, all right, like give me the lay of the land here or like help me understand where some landmines at least or so our thought is, okay, if we've got all these new leaders coming in, can we please like give them a little bit more of a softer landing and runway, runway to really take off and a cohort. The whole loneliness of leaders thing is real. And and again, especially if you've got very public positions or, you know, whether you're a rabbi or again, a federation head, like there is that fishbowl effect. Everyone's watching you. And so we thought, all right, well, let's try to build a leadership development program for this kind of group. And so we we launched our first cohort last year. They're about to finish. Our first pilot cohort is about to finish. There were 11 CEOs in that group. It was a very diverse mix. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason uh, that was really by design. We really do believe that the Jewish community, I mean, you know, everything, the pendulum always swings. So we've gone into a a really highly functionalized, siloed kind of organization within our community. So we wanted to take a horizontal slice of, mm-hmm. of CEOs, not just do you know federations, not just do GCCs, not just do camps or whatever, but say, okay, what would it mean to have a national organization mixed in with federation, mixed in with JCCs, mixed in with a startup that is small but mighty? And are you finding similar issues, similar things that these people in varying levels of organizations and responsibilities and type of work, or is there really variance among what kind of an organization you're running as to how that first year goes, or are there sort of commonalities that string through any executive level position? Yeah. So because we took a diverse group, we're finding more and more diversity within them, Mm -hmm. meaning we have two people in the cohort who have been CEOs before. That's a different core competency. That's right. a different level than for first-time executive director or CEO. So there's that level of difference. Now, there are also people who this is their first CEO role in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. So that's the level of specialization and a learning curve that other people don't necessarily have to have. It's not so much the size of the organization or the type, although 
there definitely are places where, you know, what would an organization like American Jewish World Service have in common with Sharsheret? Now, that said, you have the common denominator among all of these people is that, again, they're the top dog. So there is that element of Mm -hmm. like, they're carrying a certain burden that all of them can identify with, even if the type of problems and the type of issues are different. Right. There are also different crucibles of leadership that they each have Mm -hmm. that are, you know, it's, it's art. It's not science. You know, whenever you're dealing with multiple stakeholders and people and different contexts. So some of those type of curveballs, there's been some really beautiful synergy around and and common ground. Everyone knows what it's like to have a funder who maybe has clout and like how to kind of manage that or somebody you're managing who's just not performing well and Mm -hmm. how to deal with that. Okay. So part of the goal, I'm assuming anyway, that all of these people will walk away at the very least with the understanding of developing the talent within their organization and or looking at their organization. And this is going to lead me into the another part of the work is the leading places to work and how obviously I would assume these pieces all fit together in various ways, but that they're looking for right the people who are really excellent and can be fostered and mentored and given harder projects and leaned on a little more and and maybe identify those people who they can help bring up. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, I would say that's a secondary kind of thing. The the first is we, we kind of work on three levels. There's the individual, like how can we enable this person to really maximize his or her own potential? Because that will enable ripples of positive impact throughout the organization. So there's a lot that's invested within the CEO. Then there's the organizational level of, yes, you're right. We want there to be best practices policies, procedures, and practices, frankly, when it comes to an organization that these, this CEO is running. And that comes with a lot of cultural kinds of elements. And ultimately, we want every Jewish organization to have an onboarding plan mm-hmm. for any, any one of their employees, but certainly their, their top executive. So that's on the individual, so, or on the individual organizational, and then a communal level, a communal level of, you know, can this group really amplify their own leadership and the need for us to invest in these leaders just because they've reached the acme of the mountain doesn't mean that they're done. Right. They need, you know, constant development and coaching, just like anyone else, if we want to be continue to develop and be better. Or the issues um, they're going to face in five years, right, are different than what they're facing now. And they're exactly. going to have to learn and grow along the way. Is there any thoughts to develop some kind of you know materials of onboarding plans when faced with organizations are faced with this if they're not able to have somebody participate in that kind of a program? Yeah, we're just about to put out what we call an onboarding guide. It really is Great. cliff notes. Right. Like, you know, what to do. Here's a sample schedule, like 30 days, 90 days, that kind of thing. How to set you as the supervisor and the new employee up for success. You've been listening to It's Who You Know the podcast with your host Michelle W. Malkin. I'm happy to announce that this episode has been made possible through our first podcast partnership with Timeless Ketubah, unique sculptural ketubahs handcrafted by award-winning artists. Your wedding day is one of a kind and your ketubah should be one too. Before returning to my conversation with Gali Cooks, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Rabbi Sid Schwarz, who discusses with me his new project, Kenisa, Communities of Meaning Network, and the mega trends he saw that led him to create this new project. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. When people came together in the room, 
they may have known some other people from their own sector. So a person active social justice organization might know another person doing social justice, even if they were on the other side of the country. But they weren't quite sure what they had in common with the other folks in the room from the other sectors. And in fact, part of the concept is for each of the organizations to think how it is that different approaches to Jewish life might enhance their appeal and their more holistic approach to Judaism going forward. And so that integration is part of what we're doing in the Kinesan Network to help these organizations kind of see that they have some common purpose with one another and that collectively the phenomenon can actually attain more recognition. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation in the Rabbi Sid Shores in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Gali. So that would lead me into your lay leadership, but I'm going to go back to, <laughs> to the leading places to work. found this very interesting. I just wanted to point out a few things from what you have on your website. One of the things that was very interesting to me was the engagement dip after a year. That was kind of shocking for me that... Uh, that would be so prominent. And then from there, you kind of, it talks about management and maybe a reason for this dip engagement needs more training. So 51% felt like they didn't have enough training or ongoing training, the need for feedback and 53% said they didn't have a meaningful performance review in the last year and then seeking accountability. So we have 59% that say poor performance is not addressed effectively, which I can see how that would make me feel not so great, right? If you've, you're working your butt off and somebody, you know, down the hall making, if you know, making ten twenty thousand $20,000 more than you is, yep. you know, watching Netflix while cruising up a lay leader. Yep. So I want to start with this sophomore slump, and then you can talk more about sort of the work around this particular study. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm curious, is it that, you know, somebody comes into a new position and they're all excited and they're looking forward to, and then the realities of lay leadership or the work or your boss sucks or whatever other things you encounter in that first year that creates that, I guess, apathy that either you start looking for a new job or you start thinking about going to graduate school or like, I'm just going to, you know, do, you know, the bare minimum and get my paycheck and this is just a job. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why that first year is has been detrimental. Right. So it ends up being that every organization really on the planet, their employees experience some sort of sophomore slump. Mm-hmm. It's just that ours happens sooner and is so much steeper than others. And what happens is kind of what you allude to in that you get your job and you're really excited and you're like, look, mom, I can pay down my loans. Oh my God, this is awesome. Right. And then you go about your work and you start getting into some of the structural friction realities. Our managers are not trained to be strong supervisors. So the Mm -hmm. amount of feedback that you get is in some cases completely non-existent. And so what ends up happening is about at that year mark, when you most likely have not had an annual review, and look, this is not the panacea, okay? It's not like if you have annual reviews, all of a sudden your, your place is a great place to work. Right. It's basic hygiene, however. You know, it's like you're going to have at least once a year when you sit down with your boss and you say, hi, these are my goals. These are the compensation. Did I meet it? How am I doing? Like, check me. And frankly, in great places to work, there's that 360 element where you right. can check the boss as well. So what ends up happening is exactly that. There's no feedback loop. There's no supervision. If you're a good performer, you're only going to get more work to be done. And the person who's not performing is not going to have any kind of performance improvement plan or any sort of systems to be able to move that person out of the organization, making room for other A players or B players even. Mm And then it's, yeah, it's kind of like a very steep uh, spiral of disengagement that leads you to look for other jobs, like you said, or somehow say, oh my God, you know what? I just don't need this. 
And it's important to know that 70% of all employees in the United States are not engaged in their work. So it's not like we're so special here. Right. Like the issue, however, is that we've got that mission that attract that passion. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is I almost see it as like, you know, a candle that's lit that very slowly over the year just gets squashed. I mean, it Mm -hmm. just gets like extinguished. And that really is a product of the way that our organizations are structured. Better managers make better organizations, period. Mm -hmm. Just like better teachers make better classrooms. It's the same idea. And if we don't train our managers to be the best that they can be for their people, that middle dip, that kind of sophomore slump is a direct result of that, according to our hypothesis. Right. And I know that your board is made up of mostly foundations and federations, which is something I mentioned in your intro, that that was kind of where this impotence came from. And when you talk about something like how the bureaucracy that doesn't work, you know, these kind of things, I've never envisioned myself as a federation employee. Of course, I'm sure there are lots of people who enjoy their work at Federation. Various different federations obviously have various different cultures. And my experience is mostly in the Los Angeles area. But the reputation for it being a great place to work was absolutely not the case. But that's the largest Jewish employer in Los Angeles. And so when you're somebody who needs a job or is looking for a job, They've got 15 openings, right? But then you think to yourself, is this really a great place to work that I'm going to thrive? Or do I wait for maybe something smaller or something where I can have more autonomy to my work? And so it's, you know, looking at that reputation and thinking, right, how can we maybe do this better? So what are the implications of this report and what other types of work has the organization been thinking about or wanting to do around these these conclusions that aren't fantastic. I mean, you do talk about the strengths being, as you mentioned, the passion and the mission driven. I think that also comes out in the video you guys have from the GA, which is fantastic. Yeah, You know, you're motivated to go above and beyond. It's not financially driven necessarily and that you're treated with respect, which is great that that was one of the strengths that you found. I haven't always found that in my work relationships, but that's great. So it's not all bleak, but there's a lot to work with here. Right. So leading places to work is really our effort to make every Jewish organization a great place to work. And by that, we mean a place where people are able and enabled to do their best work. It doesn't necessarily mean happy gaga with free dry cleaning and unlimited snacks, right? Right. Like Google. That's not what we're talking about. It means a person is in the right role for the right strengths with the right amount of supervision with a sizable yet like a meaty yet doable portfolio. Now, yeah, we found that, so we asked basically how well, if we want every Jewish organization to be a great place to work. So first let's define, you know, what the hell is a great place to work, right? Which is in the report and we, we did that. And it's not rocket science. Right. It really, really, really isn't. It's kind of so simple. It's kind of ridiculous. That doesn't mean that's easy. That's I was just, to say, but you get bogged down in the day-to-day exactly. things. Exactly. And we don't make this a priority. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So what's a great place to work? Then we said, all right, well, if we want every Jewish organization to be a great place to work, well, how great are our Jewish organizations now? Okay. So that was our initial pilot into that was partnering with an organizational development consulting firm, doing an employee engagement survey. Because what better way to know, is your organization a great place to work than by asking the people? The people make up the organization. Mm -hmm. Their perceptions are the reality on the ground. Even if it's completely, you know, false news. Like it really, 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 that's what we needed to really understand ourselves and then communicate to the field. This is subjective. It's based on your own experience. We are Mm -hmm. a service industry. We are the asset. We are the ones that deliver the programs. We're not making widgets. 
that's when you get into the conversation with lay leaders about operational expenses. Exactly. <laughs> but that's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we've neglected our people. Like, why did this whole thing come to be? We really, we didn't understand that, of course, it is about, let's say, let's take Hillel as an example. It's about engaging college students where they are and the end user. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or summer camp. It's about making that camping experience totally magical for the camper, for the parent, for the counselor, et cetera. But let's just think about the people who are actually pulling that off. Mm-hmm. That was kind of our thinking. So the implications for it is, so we asked, are Jewish organizations great places to work? No, they're not. They're not. We're quite mediocre, in fact. And I would say because these 55 organizations that participated in our pilot survey last year, they were our coalition of the willing. You know, they mm-hmm. opted in. We didn't right. strong arm anybody. They were like, you know what? This actually makes sense. Like, let's do this. And let's also be very, very respectful of the data that comes out of it, incredibly confidential, both for the employee who and the survey so that no one can kind of track back some of the feedback to a single person, and also for the organization that is striving, but not there yet. Within that, we found that really some contributing factors. So to your point, we learned some things about our field. We did find that people feel overwhelmingly that they are respected and recognized. Mm -hmm. Like we're good at the Yasher Koach. Right. We're not so good at giving that critical feedback, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's very, very easy to be like, Michelle, yeah, shakoch for the blah, 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 right? We're never going to be like, Michelle, you know what? Last night's event could have been better. Let's come in. Let's let's debrief. Let's do an after action, whatever it is, right? right? And is it the emotional aspect of it? The not hurting people's feelings? Yes. Why? Or, or is the, I don't think that you could grow. Like, I don't think that you could do better or with this feedback, it's more of the, I'm uncomfortable with conflict. And this is a complex situation. I'd rather just not say anything and just passively be mad at you than actually sit down and and work through this together. It's one part that because we're human and nobody likes to have difficult conversations. There is also a relational aspect to it in that whenever you see the correlation, the kind of inverse correlation of like, we give the Yasha Koach, but we don't say anything bad. That is indicative of a personal kind Mm -hmm. of relational aspect. And what we learned about our sector is that we operate like a family business. Right. So that means, now look, there are many family businesses that run very well. We can train managers to manage for those types of things. Mm-hmm. But especially in small communities, like how are you supposed to put your bookkeeper, let's say, who's like the rabbi's wife, the rabbi who just bar mitzvahed your kid on a performance improvement plan, right? There are too many consequences. You're going to see her at the butcher later, you know, like whatever. There's more of that aspect. You know what? I'm not even going to say it. It's fine. We're skirting by. We're coasting. It's fine. And that's part of the culture of mediocrity mm-hmm. that is unfortunately, that was the bridge band report. That was like the lack of the value proposition. Like, okay, so what are we learning? We learned that we operate like a family business. We learned that our managers are not being managed. We learned that difficult conversations are really, really difficult for us. We also know that we don't have certain systems in place, like structures in place. Right. Because you could put your bookkeeper, who's the rabbi's wife, on a performance improvement plan if every three months you had very, very measured goals and you could see, you know, did she meet them? Or, you know, you can hedge something and it's not personal. Or find a way to have the conversation in a positive, not a negative, you're, you suck at this thing, but a positive, like we're going to work together and I'm going to support you in this aspect that I know can be improved with both of us, right? Working together, not, right? Like I said, you suck at this thing, you need to do better, do a better, you're fired, right? Yep. There's, yep. which obviously is not the way I'm sure anybody says it. I'm sure you're training and thinking about with managers as to how to have those conversations in a productive 
way in one of the episodes previous to you is with a gentleman named Drew Kugler, who does leadership and communications consulting and really talks about ways to have these conversations and more so on you know heavier conflict than review and feedback that gets you to a place where nobody's mad. <laughs> Everybody kind of feels heard. And for you as the person to be the, the better person to step up and have those conversations in a way that's productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that we learned is that people are stretched thin. Mm-hmm. They're stretched thin. And that goes directly to our lay leadership kind of conversation. Look, there, there are three reasons why a person would be stretched thin, I think in in our mind. One is bad management, because a good manager will help you prioritize, Mm -hmm. always. Two is strategy. Like, what's the strategy and the focus of the organization? Is everything to everybody? We know that a lot of Jewish organizations, unfortunately, have that mandate. They say yes to everything and no to nothing. And when they keep saying yes, it's not like they're adding additional people to help with that workflow. Especially when it comes with money. Exactly. And yeah. And then the third is really just that overhead kind of pejorative that's been debunked in everywhere but the Jewish world. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just the notion that you can't, it's not useful to have really beautiful hubcaps on a car if you don't have gas. Unless it's going to be a lawn ornament, which is totally fine. (laughs) Right. But that's how people... Feel, right? If I'm a donor and I'm giving to PJ Library, I want to give to the production of the books. I don't want to give to your salary or the lights that are on or your desk space. I want my money to go directly to the services being provided, which is right. hard to communicate. Yeah, I know that there are some organizations that find awesome funders who understand the need for operation costs and cover that, right? So your operation cost is X and you have three funders that cover X. And then you can say to other funders, yes, 100% of your donation goes to programs. That's a little bit of a unicorn. I don't think that that's the case for everybody, but that's one model where trying to split that up a little bit or, or understand your donors need to feel like their money is going directly to the the product in which you are producing. Yeah. It's also donors understanding that part of the product are the people. Right. That's it. Absolutely. I mean, PG Library is a little bit different because there really is a product, like there are the books, mm-hmm. but there's also the programming. The programming are put up by people. Right. So that means that in order for that programming to happen, it's not just supplies. It's not just like, you know, renting a space for whatever. It's we're really trying to show that investments in talent. There's a compounding aspect that's really been shortchanged. And frankly, has done us a real disservice in our community. And that's why Leading Edge had to be. I'm going to quickly run over the last aspect of the organization's work. And we talked a little bit about lay leadership as we've talked about donors, as we've talked about onboarding of executives, you know, it's lay leaders that are in charge of that. As far as being strategic and how they think about the organization and where it's going and those priorities for their executive and for their employees. And the report that you guys put out lists four different trajectories. So one that we must improve the workplace culture in our organizations by first creating a board assessment tool based on best practices. Number two, we must prioritize our investment in leadership and talent by promoting the issue, identifying concrete tools, and building new funding dynamic. Three, we must help lay leaders become more effective in their roles by crafting a code of conduct and supporting them through mentorship and coaching. And then four, we must build adaptive, highly effective search committees by creating a suite of resources to help smooth leadership transitions and infuse best practices into the process. Sound fantastic. So if you can talk a little more about how this came to be and what the thinking is as far as this third leg of the organization's work. Sure. Every effort 
that has been done in the past to build the professional talent and leadership pipeline has been done for professionals by professionals or by funders, but for professionals. The very early on, some of my board members and really key stakeholders said, you know, this thing is going to fail unless we bring together lay and professional partners here. Like nonprofit organizations don't just happen because professionals will them and do the work. Mm -hmm. They happen because there are boards with volunteer leadership and board trustees, you know, helping to steer the ship. And they happen because funders are the ones that really pay for them. And unless we invite them into this conversation to number one, share with them the fact that there really is a leadership pipeline issue here. It's Mm -hmm. not like science and fact. And number two, ask them the question, well, what's your role in building this professional pipeline? And perhaps how have you not done so in the past. That was the precursor for everything. It was, okay, let's invite the philanthropic aspect and the volunteer aspect of the nonprofit equation into this leadership conversation. And from there, we had really great conversations about two dozen very seasoned lay leaders who've been on search committees, who've been on boards of local, regional, national, international organizations who really understand. And again, I should say here, we really, again, wanted a coalition of the willing. We didn't want to convince Mm -hmm. someone that professionals mattered, but these were people who were like, I get it. These are my professional partners, not subservience. Right. And I am here to amplify their and our shared impact for the betterment of the community. So we really landed on these four areas, which showed some problems, honestly, in that we know that board members, overwhelmingly boards don't get into culture, workplace culture. Mm-hmm. And we're not advocating for them to go into the real you know, minutia of what policies do you have or whatever. Right. We're talking about the board signaling to the senior leadership that they are willing to spend money and there should be attention given to different elements that we know create a great place to work. Mm-hmm. Now that means staff retreats, perhaps. That means that certainly means different policies. And recently we learned of an organization that participated in our survey last year that offered benefits, full benefits, health insurance in particular to all of its qualified employees. And they did it at the expense of some other programs. Mm -hmm. So they did say, you know what, let's kill that external facing thing so that internally actually have the bandwidth and the strength and support that we need in order to keep our team and really build a culture. Right. Because your budget is a value document, right? When you really look at how you spend your money and that's lay led, right? There's a a lay committee that looks at it. There's a president who approves how you spend your money. And when you look at it and you say, you give $1,000 for professional development for 10 people and we give you know, $20,000 board members to travel to the board meeting, right? You're making that value judgment and saying what is and what isn't important. So if you do value your professionals and professional development and travel to conferences and these kind of things so that they can be better to serve your organization, you need to look at that line item and say, is this an appropriate reflection of how we value our employees? And as you mentioned, like healthcare, other benefits and things like that, it might be expensive, but there's a reason that people do it. And there's a reason that there's a a benefit to it that employees feeling secure, wanting to stay there for longer, feeling taken care of. And it's not always about money, but sometimes it's about the extrinsic things that make one whole picture of, I'm not going anywhere, right? I've been in this job for one year, even I've been in this job for six months, for seven months. And this is where I want to be. Yep. That's the feeling you want to cultivate and not the the downward sloping of, yep. gosh, this is just hard and hard. And then you start looking for something else and or you get into the mediocrity of your work. Yep, exactly. 
Exactly. That's, that's it. Your, your budget, like what you measure is what you are. Mm-hmm. And, and, right. and that's, uh, that's a big thing. And we just try to impress upon lay leaders that, you know, happy employees yield happy end users. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. Just like, you know, that's, it's a core value of hospitality. Right. Happy employees, you have happy customers. Well, and if you're giving your hard-earned money to an organization because you want X result, you're only going to get that X result if you have productive, happy people thinking outside the box, thinking of different ways to do it and making that a reality in a a fantastic way, then you feel like your, your dollars have gone further. Yep, exactly. Wonderful. Um, Well, I really appreciate your uh, diving into all these different things as far as your work, knowing that our audience are Jewish professionals or rabbis or lay leaders or just the Jewish community in general. What is some advice from your vantage point in doing this work for our professionals, for our managers or executives, for for anyone that that you would give? My advice would be a little bit differentiated based on where a person is coming from. I think for entry level junior staff, seek out mentorship and supervision elsewhere if you're not getting it internally and really seek it out. Take the initiative in that way. Because what I've seen is, and this was early in my career too, there were certain people who were like, well, they're not serving me up a perfect meal, like I asked. And then there were certain people who were like, well, I want the bun and I want a steak and I want, and they went out and they got it. Right. And I think that initiative at all levels of one's career, there's a compounding positive slope to that. So I would say from, especially early in your career, the most important thing that you can gather is feedback on your performance. Mm -hmm. And being aware of those key players that are like role models, big and small. They don't have to be like role models like, you know, Martin Luther King. They can be like, oh, wow, that's a stellar professional. I want to be that one day. Mm -hmm. Or I want to learn how to run a meeting like that or whatever else. I think always having that openness to constantly learn and take in that feedback is incredibly important. For the middle management, I would say I so hear your pain. (laughs) (laughs) I think middle managers, that's the hardest, hardest seat. They have to lead up. They have to manage down. It's, you know, in many ways, they can be the magical key to an organization that's usually unsung, you know, the unsung Mm -hmm. heroes. And there I would say seek out those leadership development programs that are now coming up more and more and will continue to come up more and more in our community and outside. I mean, that's that's the good time to kind of get some outside cohort-based if you can get it, but that can also be continuing education at a certain university or, or even, you know, foundation center, you know, or management center kind of courses. There, I would say, because a middle manager is usually incredibly, incredibly busy. Having some dedicated outside of the office, academic, honestly, classroom time can be a real help for time for reflection, time to really instantly apply what you may have learned mm-hmm. to back into your work. It's like exercise. Like you think you can do it on your own, but sometimes it's easier just to go to a class That's and right. then you know you're going you're gonna to right. exercise, right? That's right. And to your point, middle managers need coaches. Mm-hmm. Get a coach. Because it's exactly like that. It's like you're all of a sudden, you know, you've trained maybe for like the New York Marathon and now you're going to the Olympics. Right. Like you need to up your game. So coaching, I'm a huge proponent of coaching. I would say that for middle managers. For CEOs, like remember, it's all about your people. It's a team. It's not I, it's we. And we, we really, all of what we do is kind of pointed to that C-suite because mm-hmm. great leaders make great organizations. And if you don't have at least the tacit agreement of the CEO and the C-suite behind any talent effort, it's just not going to go anywhere. 
Right. And that it's frustrating because I'm very grassrootsy, but it, like this has to be bottom up, top down. And for lay leaders, remember that it really is all about the people. And without the people, you don't have the nonprofits. Yeah, and it's a partnership. It's a partnership. I mean, it's as with anything. I mean, this all comes down to relationships, playing nicely with others. It's the we before the I, and it's the team before the self. Right. It, there's a reason we call it the Jewish community. It's not the Jewish industry. It's not the Jewish corporation. It's the Jewish community. We're in this together, and that's what draws people to do work or to want to be involved in a synagogue or you know part of a committee on a board or it's the community it's being around people who share your values who look at an issue or a topic in the world and say i want to work to improve this however that might look with the lens of the jewish values that i so hold dear and i want to do it together right Especially yep. for funders, you've got money, you can do whatever you want and give it to whoever you want, but you're wanting to do it within the Jewish community because we are a community and that connotes a different sense of, of togetherness that is really important to always keep on the forefront. Yeah, nice. Wonderful. And then my last question for you for this episode is how, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you <laughs> stay grounded in the work that you do? You know, you are the only employee for this? Uh, no, so I have a full-time program director and then like an army of consultants <laughs> helping Okay, out. great. Yeah, yeah. So you're, I mean, you are leading one other employee. You're obviously a small operation trying to do everything for everyone, <laughs> as you alluded to before. How do you get it all done? How do you stay balanced? How do you continue to enjoy your work with the, the challenge? challenges that might come up? So how I get it done is different than how I stay balanced because I wouldn't say I'm balanced, um, which is part of the whole startup uh, climb, honestly. But I will say none of this would have come to be without my board and, mm -hmm. and my founding funders. I, they are really the key to cutting through a new path and helping me not skin my knee on certain things. And they've been incredibly kind and generous in ways that go above, you know, just writing a check. And that's really beautiful that there's a real spirit of collaboration. Look, it's not always peaceful. Like, you know, we're trying to do real work here right. and there are relationships, there are histories, there are differences of opinion. There are people who take real pride in their work and therefore it can get personal and all that. But I think my board is really the secret sauce. My board are basically all my funders, give or take. And I lean very, very heavily on them. And it's, and they know, they know that as a startup, you know, it's kind of like with an infant, like there are different stages of, of life within an organization. And we're kind of in the midnight feeding kind of time. Right. You know? so, and they, they give us a lot of TLC. They really do. And I ask for it, frankly, Right. you know, we're not teenagers where they can just like, you know, say, don't, don't crash on the way to school and you know, drive safely. So I would say my board is a real key. My philosophy is if we're really trying to turn around our community and our sector and really build a, a talent pipeline, then we have to be accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. And we were formed to be a neutral platform for everybody. And so that is core to our mission. Mm -hmm. Meaning like there are days and there has been several days mm -hmm. when I would meet with APAC in the morning and J Street at night. Mm -hmm. you know? Like there really is, talent is agnostic to all of that political stuff. Right. Everybody needs good people. And so I think holding that, that really keeps me going. And I think makes us unique in, mm -hmm. in many ways. It's that you all want good people. Core competencies are different. Missions are different, all that. But everybody wants good people to be on this journey with on the lay and the professional side. That definitely inspires me in their days when it's like, oh, all right, we, you know, small victory for the little guy. Right. <laughs> um, Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'll just say as far as the work of Leading Edge in, in your own work, research in the Jewish community sometimes is lacking. And I get frustrated at certain times when organizations make decisions that are not backed with any kind of 
researcher understanding and just assumption of what the community needs, what this demographic needs, and we're just going to push out this thing because we think that that's what they need and that's what's best. And I think it's only when you take the time and do the due diligence of these reports and be able to say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z because we have this data that shows us that what's needed is X, Y, and Z. So not only have your funders and your partners and yourself taken this data and really narrowed it down to what impact can we have, and then looked very strategically at how to do that and the stages that it takes to do that. So I love the work that your organization is doing. I love the work that you're doing. I love that it's backed by data and research and that OSU doesn't seem to be something that's stagnant. It seems to be something that you guys are always thinking about when you want to take on something new, when you want to look at something new. How do we back that up by by data? And in doing that, right, you have, what was it, 5,500 people who now feel invested in your work, who feel like they're heard, who feel like somebody cared enough to ask me if I like my work and like the place that I'm working and cares enough to want to find solutions to maybe why I don't like where I'm working and in making the Jewish community better. So I greatly appreciate the organization and the work and I'm so happy they found such a talented person to to lead that effort. So thank you so much for being on the program. And I'm sure we'll bring you back in a a few months to talk a little bit more about how things have progressed and when you get a second cohort of CEOs and, and all that wonderful stuff. So thank you so much, Gali. Amazing. Thank you, Michelle. This was great. So I reflect on my conversation with Gali. I start to think about the why. Why haven't Jewish organizations been great places to work? Or for those of us who love our work, why is the perception that the Jewish community is not a great place to work? There's so much that we can learn from these emerging programs. As I continue my conversations in future podcasts with members of the staff at the Schusterman and Wexner Foundation, I discuss more and more how we can bring the concepts and ideas behind these programs into our organization. So the value of the work Leading Edge is doing is not solely for those who participate in their programs, but our values and techniques that can be disseminated among the many and ingrained in our organizational culture as we grow into the future. The vision of an organization like this is to no longer be needed because the thing they were trying to fix is no longer a problem. The goal is that one day these philanthropists or their descendants We'll look at our field and see that our organizations are doing a great job onboarding CEOs and new staff members, that they're developing their lay leaders and mentoring and guiding their professional staff. And through the work of this organization, one day, Jewish organizations will have the reputation of being really great places to work. It may be a grand, unattainable vision, but it's a really good one. And maybe one day, our children will grow up saying, I want to lead a Jewish organization. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I want to leave you with a few announcements. The first being, as I mentioned in our break, we have our first podcast partner, TimelessKatuba.com. And I had an opportunity to interview David Master, the founder of Timeless Ketuba, about how he came to found the company and how he created the first sculptural Ketuba with his wife. And the reaction that he got from that creation really then fed into into the work he does. I urge you all to take a look at that. It's on our website with his bio and a link to their website. Beautiful, beautiful pieces of artwork. 
The second announcement I have is for those who are new to the podcast because they saw us on eJewish Philanthropy, welcome. If you haven't seen that article, it is on our website under the About Us section. I really just talked about the lessons that I've learned from these conversations and pulled some quotes from some of the interviews that I've done. If you haven't seen that, I urge you to go to the website and take a look. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. I'm looking forward to broadcasting my conversation with Sid Shores. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.